Herzlich willkommen zu Hamburg hört ein Hu, dem Podcast der HW Hamburg rund um die Hamburg Open Online University. Wir haben heute im Januar 2020 Catherine Cronin zu Gast bei uns im Podcast. And that's reason enough for me to switch to English. Um, welcome to our podcast, Catherine Cronin. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I, I mentioned it in, in our conversation before hitting the record button that this is a Sunday afternoon and that really I really do appreciate you joining us. I also mentioned in the conversation we had before I hit the record button that I will be asking you to introduce yourself. Um, and please do take your time with that. Maybe tell us a bit about what it is that you do. How did you get to where and who you are today? Um, start wherever you like and you feel comfortable and um, we'll listen and I might have a couple of follow-up questions on that as well. Okay, thank you so much. Um, uh, okay, well, I'm speaking to you from Galway in the west of Ireland on a lovely sunny day. And um, I, But I am originally from New York City. So I have made my home in Ireland. I've lived here for about half my life. But oftentimes when people know me from my present home in Ireland, they're surprised that they hear an American accent. So that's where that comes from. I am, I am born in the Bronx, and I suppose my heart uh, very much is still there where I was born. Um, I work in Ireland for a, a small body called the National Forum, and the full name of it is the National Forum for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. And it's a unique body. It's centrally funded, um, a neutral, academically led body, a very small team that really works to support the enhancement of teaching and learning across all higher education in Ireland. Um, and that's really done through collaboration mm -hmm. with students and educators across all the institutions. Um, I have been working there for just a little over one year. And before that, I worked for about 18 years at the National University of Ireland in Galway. Uh, and Galway is where I live. But uh, overall, I would describe my career as one of many alternative paths in a few different countries. So <laughs> I am I'm certainly happy to answer questions about that. But I, I originally qualified as an engineer uh, way back when. And that was, you know, I received some some good and certainly not gendered career advice at that stage. And I, I was a good student in maths and physics, so I was encouraged to consider studying engineering, which I did. Um, and I, I received a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, and I actually worked in kind of the engineering and technology industry for about six years, during which time I, I, I studied for a master's degree in systems engineering. I worked in the U.S. and in Ireland. And I worked in an area, um, believe it or not, in the, in the mid-80s, um, computer-aided design was going on in the company that I worked for in the U.S., and then they would print out these big drawings and ship them over to the manufacturing plants in Europe, where people would take them out of these tubes and unroll them and then program uh, the manufacturing equipment. So I worked with people at, you know, one person in each of these European plants and myself, and we were kind of this CAD-CAM integration team of engineers trying to figure out how we could facilitate that and make that um, link electronic, you know. So it was, it was an interesting time uh, to work in engineering, but I have always been very... I suppose, politically active from the time I was a child in New York City my, with my parents. We, we always were very engaged in what was going on in the world. And, and I've 
always active in my community. So after I worked in engineering for a number of years, I just began to feel that, as I described it at the time, I, I wasn't bringing my whole self into work. It was intellectually rewarding, but um, it didn't connect all the parts of me. And so from about my late 20s, for the next 15 years, I worked, uh, I basically left that engineering company, IT company that I was working for, and I put together what would be called very, very politely a portfolio career, but it was really kind of adjunct and contract work. But I taught um, with the Open University I and also NUI Galway. I did community education in various community centers, usually in marginalized areas with women who wanted to learn uh, how to use computers and to in- improve their computing skills to re-enter the workforce. Um, I did a big research project about gender and technology. And that was really... Um, where I pulled a lot of the strands of myself together and I suppose were the roots of, of kind of what I do now. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to answer any particular questions because I know you said you were interested in some of those career changes. Uh, I am because I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how to, to put this the right way in English, to be honest, but I found it interesting because um, uh, you are one of the, at least in, in my world, you're, you're one of the, stars maybe of, of open education especially when it comes to the practices part and to to lots of the research in, in that and i found it really interesting because um i don't think too many people know that you started out as an uh, as a systems engineer in the the 80s and actually uh i only found out about it on bonnie stehoviak's podcast i think yes uh from from 2017 we'll link to that as well Uh, but I also found it interesting to read in a student's blog post, I think, uh, where basically, I think her name is, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, Mel Sharp. Is that right? Yes, yes. I found that on your about page, um, mm-hmm. where she wrote about you as an inspiring um, voice in open in, in open education. And I found it interesting that that is where she started. Um, and I was wondering, uh, personally, when when I read that, how much you think of your experiences as a systems engineer in the 80s um, can be found in your current work and your in your research, but, but also in, in the work mm-hmm. that you do at the National Forum? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I'm not sure if I said it in Bonnie's um, interview mm-hmm. uh, on her podcast, but I, I sometimes call myself a recovering engineer <laughs> <laughs> because... Uh, Basically, an engineering education trains you in being a structured thinker, mm-hmm. is how I would describe it. And so I sometimes say when I'm working with people, you know, is my engineering slip showing? Because I, I am very much a structured thinker. And if someone gives me a complex problem, I will try and break it down into different pieces and mm-hmm. look at the, the big picture and all the boxes and um, what do we know, what don't we know, and and you know, how can we sequence where to go from here? It's so, although I don't work in engineering anymore, it has informed my approach as a problem solver. And, you know, I was just working on something last week and I was describing um, to a friend that I was saying, this is my favorite kind of work, you know, looking at kind of a complex problem and 
and breaking it down and trying to figure out a, a cohesive way to go forward and also to communicate about it. So, and, and I think that comes from a lot from my engineering education. Mm-hmm. And the other way I suppose that it, it plays out in, in my current work is that it gave me a lot of confidence around technology. So, and it was why some people hired me for particular pieces of work is because I had um, a background in IT. So, um, you know, I, in the 90s, I was, I did, I taught for several years with the Open University when I was living in Scotland. And I, I taught on the a women's studies module and also on a module called DT200, which was quite radical for the time. Some, some listeners may know of it. It was called um, Introduction to Information Technology, Social and Technological Issues. And this was in, as I said, the mid-90s. So it's quite radical to be taking this sociological lens to IT. But for someone like me, who was very interested in those problems and questions and challenges, um, that, was, that was an ideal course for me to teach. Um, and it also, that DT200 module also used, um, was the first module to use an online asynchronous uh, conferencing system called COSI. So I was kind of asynchronous online learning uh, for the first time. And, you know, it was very early days of that. It was, it was fairly straightforward, but, you know, really it was my first experience of that. And, and again, that plays out into, into my work today. So I, I think it was, um, it was a very good grounding for me, although, you know, doing straight engineering work wasn't really the right work for me. Hmm. When you mentioned it um, a couple of minutes earlier, you said you're, you received, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, non-gendered advice to get into <laughs> systems engineering. Is that a polite way to say that you were only one of a few women in your whole class or was it different at that time? Could you speak a bit about well, that? It's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I had a guidance counselor in high school in the States and, you know, they look at what you are enjoying and what you're good at in high school. So um, at that, my first degree was mechanical engineering and then I went on and studied systems engineering. But I did not realize, I suppose, until I went to college And until I talked to some of my other peers in engineering, um, particularly women, that that was quite unusual to get that advice. Because many, many women who end up in engineering said they were they were not advised to study it, or they were advised to, to do other things, you know, teaching or or something else. Mm. So I, I think it was it was fortunate, I suppose, that um, the person who who had a conversation with me and advised me wasn't encumbered by by those gender stereotypes. I don't know why, but um, I, I think it's interesting now. After I did those two degrees in engineering, though, and I had worked in engineering for a while, you know, one of the life-changing things that I did was I decided to do a master's degree in women's studies. Um, it was uh, Ireland's, it was actually Ireland's first program, mm-hmm. uh, postgraduate program in women's studies. It was a part-time master's degree at the University of Limerick. And at that stage, probably five or six years out of university, I realized that a lot of the things that I loved, um, literature and history and thinking about society, were, I had never studied any of those things. Um, and that women's studies curriculum included all of those things, sociology mm-hmm. and history, feminist philosophy, mm-hmm. the philosophy of education. Um, and as I said, I think that was life-changing for me because it gave me... Um, kind of theoretical constructs to understand my experiences as a woman in engineering. Um, and it also ignited my love of research. 
because I hadn't done that kind of research uh, as an engineering student. Um, and certainly that's something that's continued for my whole life. Um, I do enjoy research very much. Is, is that a straight line from the Master's in Women's Studies to your work in education? Did that kind of feed into one another then? Or is that, would you, would you say that there was a phase after that that kind of helped you find another path after that? Well, um, after I did the MA in Women's Studies, I, I did teach on in women's studies programs at the Open University and in Galway. And I also worked on a three-year research project um, funded by the Scottish Higher Education Funding Council about um, women in STEM. And, I mean, that, it's, it's very interesting that uh, I, I published a paper with one of my colleagues on that project, Angela Rogers, in 1999. We did the research in the mid-90s. Um, and it's still my most cited paper, really, really interesting. Um, and, but yes, it's very connected to what I do now because what we did was we, we looked at 20 years of research of mm -hmm. women in STEM. Um, and for me, it's, it's, it's so frustrating that a lot of these tropes are still, we're still wrestling with them. So, you know, you can pick up, um, you can pick up a blog post any day of the week and read about, you know, the importance of having more role models and more, um, mentors and so on for women in STEM. And, and what we found in our research was that all of that is fine, um, but it's not sufficient that we really have to change the culture of engineering and, and STEM um, if, if we want women and other underrepresented groups um, to not only enter but flourish in mm -hmm. those fields. And, you know, I was thinking recently that, you know, the, a lot of those same arguments can be applied to technology today. Um, you know, of course, it's important that we talk to people about, you know, individual things that we can do to preserve our privacy and to, um, to avoid surveillance and all the different ways that we use, um, you know, the open web, for example. But we need structural change and we need you know, bigger solutions. This is not, this is, this is not an individual problem. And to the extent that we look at these things as, you know, individual problems that people need to address in their lives, you know, we will never solve um, these complex issues. So we have to have a kind of a, a larger structural, cultural um, approach to problem solving. And I guess that's what having a, a critical approach is all about. And, and that's, I know you're engaged in that in, in open education and so am I. Lots of the questions that are being raised tend to f sometimes feel like the treatment of the uh, symptoms instead of the, the treatment of the actual uh, route that needs to be, be changed. I think that's, that's kind of what, what's resonating with me when, when I listen to you right now. I don't yes. know if, if you would put it differently or. Well, no, I, I, I think that's correct. I, I think that's spot on. Um, you know, one of the ways that certainly in that research we'll say about gender and STEM. Uh, one of the ways that we described that was that, you know, encouraging more women, you know, trying to encourage more women, you know, to enter those fields when we know that they're leaving mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in high numbers is, is taking a deficit view of women. You know, say, well, there's something wrong with girls and women if they're not making these choices, rather than saying that girls and women see exactly what's going on and realize that it's, you know, not a healthy place or not a place that where they can flourish and are, are not making those choices. Um, and, and it's very much the same with, you know, as you point out, as in, in technology today, you know, it's not enough to say to people, well, 
you know, just get off Facebook. You know, yeah. what's the bigger problem here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we who, you, you know, you and I and, you know, many other people who are working in these issues, you know, it's, it's our task as people who, who, understand, um, who understand those issues to make our voices heard um, mm-hmm. and, you know, to try and see what we might be able to do. Um, because, you know, it's a time of, of flux at the moment. And, you know, the, the way things are now is not the way that they, that they need to be. I remember if I can, um, I'll try and circle back a bit. Um, uh, one of the first talks I ever saw you give was, I'm not sure which um, Open Educational Resources Conference it was. Was it OER 17 or 16? If open is the answer, what is the question? Was I think uh, the title OER of it? 16, that yes. Was 16 in Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember that while listening to you speak there, For me, you were one of, at least on, on my radar, I just started out in, in open a couple of years before that. So um, a puppy com- compared to many. But I remember that that was one of the first times where I saw a clear connection between open education and um, different kinds of activism mm-hmm. um, and the lines that you drew between these kinds of different fields and different actions resonated with me quite quite a while after that i'm not sure like i i didn't prepare you for for this at all but could you maybe point to one or two points that you made in that talk that kind of help us and help the listeners find those those lines as well yes um sorry to put you on the spot right no like not that. at all i i remember <laughs> fondly that conference and <laughs> Uh, for a lot of reasons, yeah, it was it was it was a good one. I think it was it, there was a real. I remember blogging after it and talking mm-hmm. about the critical turn that mm-hmm. was happening in, yeah. in, in open education because it seemed like there was a, a critical mass of people talking about open education in this way um, at that stage. So yes, I remember it well. Um, yeah, I suppose it, it's what a lot of people talk about now when we talk about the importance of as educators in, in higher education, which is where I work, um, the importance of equipping students not just um, to complete the assessments and complete each particular module for a particular degree, but to equip them to, to participate in society and in democracy, which is increasingly open and networked and participatory. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say, you know, in 2020 now, looking back at 2016, I would say it even more strongly today because there's probably more reasons for people to be afraid or, or, or really understand the risks of the open web today than there were even in 2016. So the way I see that play out is, you know, people really making choices away from openness because of all the risks. And to the extent that people make those choices, then they will not be, um, part of that, you know, participatory culture and democracy. And we leave that open to um, surveillance capitalism and, and all its players. Um, so as an educator, you know, I've always said to the students who, who, who I've been fortunate to work with that I would hope that at the end of their time in higher education that they have 
you know, wonderful friendships and great memories and a good degree or qualification in whatever it is that they may be studying, but also that they have the tools for, you know, whatever you want to call it, lifelong learning or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And that, you know, whatever students are studying, whether it's social work or law or engineering or, or whatever, um, they will practice that work um, as well as be a, a person in society largely in a digital networked way. So, so if we're not wrestling with what that means for a social worker who receives a Facebook request from a client or, um, you know, an engineer who has to decide how to communicate the risks of, a, of an upcoming project, if we're not wrestling with those admittedly difficult questions when students are with us, you know, while they're studying, then we're failing them. Um, so, I mean, I feel that really strongly. And so that's been, that's been the rationale for, for much of my work over the mm-hmm. last 10, 12 years, and certainly why I did the PhD as well. Um, because I think this is probably one of the most important things we do um, in, in higher education and as educators generally. Uh, yeah, and, and I think many people would wish themselves back to a world of 20 2016 compared to what we have what we have today in that in those spaces especially um when i looked at your blog that can be found at katherinecronin.net i always like to i don't know about you but i always like to go back in the archives a bit and lots of people who blog are kind of not scared but unrattled a bit when 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 they when when someone tells them that They found a blog post from eight, nine, or ten years ago. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about that. Uh, I I feel fine. I, I I always feel like I you know I I write from who I am, so <laughs> I, I think it's fine. No, but I think I found something that really fits into this this theme that we're touching upon right now. Which and it's a post from 2011 where you cited a, a I think a tweet or a post from Josie Fraser. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you you remember what I'm going to to hint at. Um, no, I don't. But please tell me. <laughs> so um, Josie, I think, um, published on a type pad apparently a quote that says, "Education should critically ensure children, young people, and adults are equipped to be unsettled, to be confronted by difference, to be changed, and to affect change." And yes. you. Uh, I think you had the chance to weave that into a talk at the ICT in Education Conference yes, in 2011. Yes. And um, I was, be- before we started our conversation, this is just an open tab in my browser, and I think it, it fits really neatly. I'll link to that in the show notes as well, to what we've been talking about um, right now in terms of mm-hmm. activism and openness to some extent. Yes, I remember, yeah, because uh, I think there was an invitation um, as part of a, kind of, it was something, some conversation that was going on on, on Twitter and the open web at that time, um, and I, we put quotes onto images, and I remember using a black and white image of a of a glass of water kind of half on and half off a table. Exactly. That kind of, yeah, it was yeah. a metaphor for, for that quote from Josie. Yeah. I do remember yeah. Uh, I found those slides. Uh, I don't know where I found those slides. Um, they must be linked in the blog post somewhere. Yes, I'll, I'll look yes. that up and, and see if I can link to that in the show notes <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, at that time when you were giving that talk in Edinburgh and um, also when you, when you talked to Bonnie 
um, on the on her podcast in, in 2017, I think in May. You were almost finishing your PhD at that time, right? Yes, that's right. Um, I think uh, was that your was that your first PhD, or I think you you had some kind of doctorate degree before that, didn't you? No, I, I mean up? I had the two master's degrees mm -hmm. in different areas, so. Okay. Um, so yeah, the PhD is my one is my one and only PhD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so and and your dissertation is called. Let me look that up. Uh, openness and praxis: a situated study of academic staff, meaning um, making and decision making with respect to openness and use of open educational practices in higher education. Um, And I don't know, um, and I know plenty of people who have completed their PhDs and once they're finished with that, they don't want to, they, they, they enjoy talking about other things after that. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's the case for you, then I'll just quickly skip this. Okay. It's not the case for me. And maybe what, what might answer the question is, is if I explain why I did the PhD. Um, so, um, in, let's say the early part of the decade, 2009, 10, 11, you know, this time that you're talking about, um, I was teaching a module in IT <clears throat> for second year bachelor's degree students in IT. And it was called Professional Skills, a very uh, innocuous name. It was really meant to be about communication skills. And I really started weaving in a lot about digital literacies, again, because I was active on the open web and real understanding the importance of digital literacy. And I really, I, I linked it closely with what the, the intention of that module was about. And so I was learning and I mean, I guess I could describe it as experimenting with care as I, as I taught that module from year to year. Um, you know, I was using Twitter. I invited the students to use Twitter. Uh, I never required it, but, you know, we invited people in to speak live, you know, via video. Um, beginning in about 2011, I think I joined with other educators in um, a network which we called iCollab for collaboration. Mm -hmm. uh, Helen Keegan and Tom Cochran and others. So we were individual educators in different countries, UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Spain, Germany, and we were linking our students um, in synchronous and asynchronous ways and, and enabling them to share their work with each other. And we didn't really know of many people who were teaching like that at that time. Certainly there weren't any in our own immediate context. So we, as I said, we were experimenting with, with care, if you like. Um, so, you know, students were connecting and collaborating. Um, my course website was a WordPress blog. Um, students uh, were invited to blog. They created digital media projects. Uh, I invited them to, to create digital media projects in whatever form they were interested in, you know, audio or video or uh, building a website. Um, and the only requirement was that it would be for someone outside the university, um, so some interest of theirs. Mm -hmm. And so that work progressed over a number of years. But then I had a moment of reckoning because I realized that um, – that work, that the nature of that work was not embedded in, in the program that my module was part of, nor at the university. And that, you know, when I stopped teaching the course in that particular way, that would, that was it. That was, um, okay. no, so no one else was really It depended like on that. you doing that work and wasn't 
structurally woven in sort of exactly and mm -hmm. I, and i think this is the case you know in my interactions with other people mm -hmm. working in this way this was the case for many of us and i was invited to speak you know at ictedu and other places and i would speak about my students and and amazing things they were doing and other people's research and but i realized I can. I, I thought about it for a couple of years, and I thought if if I could do a substantive piece of research, then I may be able to have a better basis for working towards change in terms of um, policy and systemic change. Getting back to what we talked about before, mm -hmm. because I realized that the lack of policy and you know systemic support for this kind of work speaks very loudly to people. You know, that there are some people who are willing to, to do that experimentation, especially if you have a network of others to do it with. But for many people, it's like, oh, well, that's really interesting, but, you know, I'd be afraid if something went wrong or I don't really know if the university allows that yeah, or whatever. There are certain levels of risk attached to that kind of work, right? Yes. Yeah. So so that was that that was the germ of, of, of me deciding to do the PhD. Mm -hmm. oh, I just okay. thought, well, I will do... I will... I will do this piece of work, you know, based at my institution. And I had to, it took me a little while to get the, you know, structure or funding or whatever in place. But I started that PhD in 2013. And, and really the essence of it was I wanted to understand whether, why, and how educators use open educational practices in their teaching. Um, and there was some phenomenal work going on at the time. I'm thinking of Bonnie Stewart, who's, who's finishing her PhD around then, and, and others who were looking at the practices of open educators. And, and my choice was to look at a whole spectrum of educators, those who, were, those who were open, certainly, but those who were not teaching in the open, maybe had thought about it and were moving in that direction. Some people maybe who had tiptoed up in that direction and had an experience and then retreated back. I, I really thought we could learn a lot from from the educators, you know, across that whole spectrum to help to help us understand why people make the choices that they do. So that was why I did the work and, you know, then I mean the short story is uh, I, I finished I submitted in 2017, finished in early 2018. And shortly after that, you know, I moved to my current role in the National Forum where, um, you know, I'm responsible for a lot of work in digital and open education. So for me, it's very, very connected. Yeah, I can, I can see how, how that connection, how that connection works. Um, you mentioned your work at the National Forum. And I think I went to the website of the National Forum And it says that you are the National Forum Strategic Education Developer for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning in Ireland. Mm -hmm. From your introduction, I understand that they at least narrowed it down to higher ed. So not much, not, not that big of a job anymore, but still quite, quite a challenge to enhance a country's teaching and learning, right? So what, what's your, what's your day like? How, how do you do that? Um, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, place to work. I have to say it's, it's an interesting team. It's a small team. As I said, mm -hmm. there are five, uh, five core people on the team that work full time. I'm one of those five people, but then there are eight to nine, maybe 10 other people who come in and out of the forum on a secondment basis. So there's a constant flow of people from, 
who work in various roles in the institutions who come in, some, some part-time, some full-time, um, for maybe a year, two years, sometimes even more, uh, who work on particular aspects of enhancing teaching and learning in higher education. So there's a professional development framework uh, that the National Forum has produced over the last few years with um, a, a whole host of open courses, short courses in uh, universal design for learning, um, policy making, uh, all, all different kinds of things. And they're all CC licensed short courses that can be, um, you know, can be par partaken of by individuals on their own or uh, as part of a, a formal, you know, professional development course or in hybrid ways. Um, the, the National Forum also works in the area of um, enhancing student success. So we have two student associate interns who work um, with the forum. And then, you know, the whole area of digital and open education is, is another big area, and that's really the area um, that I'm working in. So again, it's been about a year, just over a year since I, I started working for the forum. But my work has kind of been in three main baskets. And one is really just around modeling and supporting open education, kind of existing work that's going on in open education, in open textbooks, open educational resources, open educational practices. A, finding out what's going on. B, networking with some of those individuals and kind of amplifying um, some of the work that's going on and then producing some central resources like uh, we produced an open licensing toolkit last year. So that work will continue. And I'm so fortunate that there are some wonderful, you know, examples of other groups like this doing this work, although they might be structured differently. They're like, um, you know, the University of Edinburgh is, is, has done wonderful work in open education, the University of Cape Town, BC campus, I could mention more, but you know, fortunately, I have I have network connections with many of the people in those places and others, and they've been immensely supportive um, and helpful. So, um, so that that's one piece of work. The second area is supporting institutional policy making in the area of digital education. So, I facilitated some regional workshops this past year where we just um, spotlighted different examples of, of institutional policy making around things like lecture recording and um, um, yes, open licensing mm -hmm. and so on, mm -hmm. and, and the, with the intention of next year producing kind of a national resource that people can draw from and add to around that. Because not only are institutions um, you know, constantly addressing policies in these areas, but they need to be readdressed you know, on a continual basis. It's not something you do just once. Um, so that's a really important area of work. And the third area is, is gathering data. And we ran something called the index survey just this past autumn, which stands for the Irish national digital experience survey. And we adapted an existing uh, survey tool developed by JISC, the digital experience insight survey. Um, so we adapted that for the Irish higher education context. And this is where, having an organization like the National Forum is really useful because normally the way that survey works is each institution would contract with JISC and run the survey at their institution. But in our case, we have relationships and connections across all the higher education institutions. So we had 34, nearly all of the higher education institutions in Ireland ran the survey and, and we're doing kind of national level data analysis now. 
um, each institution has their own data set and they're analyzing that. Um, so the beauty of it is that we we covered most of the higher education sector in Ireland mm -hmm. and we did a survey for students and staff at the same time. So the surveys are closely linked so you can see what students say and what staff say. And um, so, you know, we're only at the initial stages of analyzing that data, but it's fascinating. And we, we, we plan to launch a report in, in early May and that will be openly, openly available, um, obviously. And, and sounds as not messy, but complicated and complex that a, like the you with the, the systems engineers mindset, like almost yes. craving complex problems, probably. Beautifully complicated, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you walk to work every day smiling. <laughs> Bouncing, yes, yes. <laughs> so, yes, so, I mean, we, it, it is, um, it, there, it's mostly quantitative data, but some qualitative data. So there will be phases that we analyze the data. So we'll produce a report that will be, you know, really just our first phase of a summary analysis. But then we hope to dive into, you know, as we really understand what surfaces in the data more, you know, dive into certain areas of it and explore that, you know, in more focused ways mm -hmm. over, over the next year to two years. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. Sounds like a like a pool of data that you can draw many conclusions from as well, right? And that you can do plenty of work with. Yes, and kind of ground mm -hmm. what we're doing and help focus, you know, in Ireland, like in many um, higher education systems, our resources are are limited and increasingly so. And 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 our and our challenges in the area of digital education are enormous and continually changing. So to have this data which helps us understand um, what what the digital experiences and expectations and engagement of students and staff actually is um, we think will will really help us kind of focus our efforts where can people find that uh, probably on the the websites of the national forum yeah the national forum is just teaching and learning mm -hmm. ie okay and there is um, there's a top level menu for index which is this survey and and right now that reflects us running the survey but that will be continually updated as um as we you know as we start producing mm -hmm. um the reports because i'm guessing that even in comparison to to other regions and countries that uh, this might be interesting in terms of assessment but also how how you basically approach the work and the survey and, and all that and the structure of it Yes, and you know we are we're very grateful for you know JISC has run their survey in the UK for a number of years, mm -hmm. and they've also run their survey in Australia and New Zealand. So you know there's some international benchmarking mm -hmm. that's enabled through us kind of adapting and an existing uh, validated survey, even though we did you know adapt it for some of our you know particular needs. So yeah, sounds it's great. Interesting. Sounds great. Um, Before we, before I hit the record button, I um, warned you almost. I don't, I don't think warning is the right thing to 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 call it. But um, I basically said at the end of the conversation, when we when we approach the 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 end of the conversation, I will ask you what you would have liked to be asked instead of just asking mm -hmm. you something. So I'd like to take this this time for you to basically plug anything that that you think we could have or should have touched upon? Yes. Um, well, uh, I mean, we, we talked before the, before we, we hit record mm -hmm. just about um, the OER conference and it came up in our conversation, of course, as well. And, 
I think of all the networks that, that I'm part of, that has been one of the one of the most instrumental in in both my development as a as a critical um, educator and, and researcher, but also just in in meeting other people who are who are so motivated as well uh, in this area. So you know, the OER twenty conference is coming up. April 1st and 2nd mm-hmm. in London. And, you know, many of your listeners may know of this already, but I would certainly point them to that. And um, maybe another hashtag is FemedTech. Mm-hmm. I think you certainly spoke about this with Marin Deepwell uh, in your previous episode. Uh, it, it's a network. Uh, I was involved in the, the, the beginning of the network, which was just very organic conversations about, again, women who work in, education technology, roughly, uh, in all different places who um, are, are motivated around issues of inequality mm-hmm. as women, but also more broadly. Um, so we wanted a way just for us to network in a very, in a very flat, you know, non-hierarchical way that people could communicate, contribute, network, support one another, um, help, help illuminate problems for and with one another. So it has been a re- very generative network in so many ways. And the, there's, a, there's a project going on at the moment called the FemEd Tech Quilt, uh, which, is, which, which will be um, part of OER 20. Uh, so that's, th- those are probably two networks that are just foremost in my mind at the moment. Yeah, especially the, the blog and the FemEd Tech Quilt is something that I would definitely encourage listeners to to look up i'll post the link in the show notes as well um and the oer 20 conference um we might um we might meet actually in person again after almost yes looking forward <laughs> to <be> that lovely. <laughs> <laughs> okay well i think that almost wraps up our conversation um thank you so much for listening if you'd like to send us feedback uh, send an email Uh, to us or get in touch on Twitter. You'll find the link to do both in, in the show notes as well. If you're not listening on Spotify or one of those proprietary platforms, um, if you want to subscribe, just use your um, your phone's podcast app, hit subscribe, and you'll f- uh, find additional links and resources in the um, show notes. Um, to in the in the show notes, you will also be able to find many of the things that Catherine and I just talked about. Um, for example, the National Forum and, and the survey, but also her PhD and, and everything else. Um, Catherine, thank you so much again for taking the time, especially on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I think I've stressed this three or four times now, but I don't think one can stress it enough. This was your Sunday afternoon and you took the time to, um, to talk to, to me on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Christian, and uh, hopefully we'll meet at OER 20. I hope so. And I, I, I would just like to mm-hmm. apologize because I know that Marin in her um, podcast spoke in German, and I'm afraid that I don't <laughs> have any German. I can't do that. But I will say thank you in Irish, which is Gormila <laughs> Nice. So my contribution. Dankeschön. <laughs> um, if people want to follow up um, and read up on your blog posts or your Twitter, they can find that at katherinecronin.net or on Twitter at Catherine Cronin, if I'm right. 
Yes, that's right. And, you know, I, I tweet and speak mostly about open education, but sometimes also about politics and poetry and other things and um, kind of how I see the world. So, uh, but I'm always willing to, um, to continue the conversation. I'm happy to do that. And who knows, there might be a German tweet or two hitting you pretty soon. <laughs> um, thank you for, so much for taking the time again. Um, and well, take care. Hey, thanks, Christian. 